Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret's just-arrived collection of swim and other sun-ready silhouettes. Pack your bags with new styles from the Very Sexy Collection, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy push-up bra, in on-trend hues like green and citron and black shine. Rewind to the future with the VS Archives Swim Collection, inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. Plus, mix and match with their wide range of bikini tops and bottoms to find your dream suit. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Welcome to Go Ask Alley, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. Hey everyone, it's Allie Wentworth. This week, I'm re-airing an episode about supporting our LGBTQ teens. This year, there have been over 100 bills that aim to curb the rights of transgender people across the country, most of which would greatly affect minors. So I hope my conversation with the wonderful Stephen Russell will shed even more light on the importance of fighting for trans equality at home and in our schools. Please enjoy. Today, I'm very excited about my guest, Stephen Russell, and his resume goes on for pages. His credentials include working at the University of Texas at Austin as a director for the College of Natural Sciences School of Human Ecology. He served as past chair of the board of directors of the Sexuality Information and Education Council of the United States, Sex Ed for Social Change. Finally, he's also part of the LGBTQ community and a father to a teen. Stephen, thank you so much for being here. Great. I'm really glad to be here. You kind of focus on relationships between LGBTQ teenagers and their families. Um, you're constantly working very hard to change policy. Before we get to that, I want to go through identification because I think a lot of parents need to understand. I have two teenage daughters who have informed my husband and I they are cis, uh, meaning they identify their gender with their sexuality. Is that correct? Their gender with their sex that was assigned at birth. Yes, their sex. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. See, this mm -hmm. is why we're going to have a lot to go through. Um, so let's talk about sexual orientation, because that is that is different than uh, sexual identity. Yeah. And gender identity and expression. Yeah. So sex is what we are assigned at birth, male or female, and is based on biological characteristics or traits. Mm -hmm. um, it is actually a little it is more complicated than male or female in human physiology anatomy. We understand now there's much more actual human variation in sexual characteristics and, and biological sex than we thought. We understand much more now about ideas about intersex, uh, meaning the space between and people who, uh, whose biological, physiological sex is not consistent with our ideas about, you know, exclusive maleness and exclusive femaleness. And this is different from when you hear people say, yes, I was born a boy, but I don't feel like a boy. I feel like a girl. I know this sounds very yeah. elementary right now, but I, I do want for people listening to this to really understand terms and, uh, and labels when we go into these discussions. Right. That is the manifestation of gender identity. When as a young person feels 
that their gender identity or that their gender expression, the way they understand themselves in the world is either consistent with or not consistent with the sex that is on their birth certificate or that is their biological, physiological self. And so when your kids tell you we're cis, it means that they understand their feminine identity, their female identity, and that's consistent with um, the way that they were presented to the world and understood by their pediatricians and parents when they were when they were born and when they were little right. growing up. And, and of course, for some kids, if that is inconsistent, if they grow up feeling that there's a mismatch, that it didn't, it's not quite right, that they were surprised to find out when they were three that they were a boy when they really thought they were a girl or, you know, felt like a girl or the other way around. That is when we think of and understand transgender, although transgender is not necessarily what people call themselves necessarily. Sometimes it is, but Mm -hmm. often transgender is a description of the gender identity rather than the person's self-expression of their gender. Yeah. Because I found that in my little bubble that uh, parents and and teachers uh, have a tendency to not identify the correct way. A lot of times I'll hear people say, oh yeah, there's we have three trans students in our class. And they're actually not trans. You know, they're uh, non-binary or they're, you know, they're other things. But people, I think, more and more get confused by these identifying factors, um, which actually causes the the youth more trouble <laughs> than yeah, they're, what yeah. they're actually experiencing anyway. Yeah. And I think what's happened in the last decade, the last even five years, is that young people are helping us understand ourselves. And so, um, you know, transgender literally means, you know, changing, moving gender. Yeah, yeah. And there are a lot of kids who are now saying the binary, the sort of male or female doesn't apply to me at all. So it's not that I'm transgender. It's just that I reject the idea that I can only express myself in a masculine way that's consistent with being called a boy at birth. I want to be something that is neither boy nor girl. It's just me. There are increasing numbers of of young people who are asserting that for themselves. And then it's complicated because for many trans kids, they view themselves not as trans, but as a boy or a girl that is different right. from how they were assigned at birth. So there are, you know, kids who say like, the truth is I'm just a girl, even though I was born as a boy and people understood me as a male, I'm a girl. And so, um, so I mean, I think one of the, you know, uh, existential adventures that we're in the middle of kind of in terms of the society understanding at being open to and understanding how young people see themselves and want to see themselves. Um, and what we know from developmental science is that honoring that is, is what's important for young people and their well-being. Do you think that, uh, that teenagers know at birth? This is really interesting and complicated. And I think that that's, you know. I know. <laughs> that's why I'm asking you. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, you know, there's still a lot to be learned on that. I'm going to say something that is kind of a rough generalization, but uh, that that gender identity and understanding of yourself with respect to gender is really something that happens really young and very early. And we've known this for, you know, 60 years, we've known that, you know, sex dimorphism, that toddlers begin to understand what it, you know, what's, what are girl things and what are boy things. And they can point out, you know, anatomy and they can, they can learn, oh, I am a boy or I am a girl, especially if they are cisgender (laughs) and all of those things align and are simple and for them to understand. There's pretty good understanding that gender identity develops in childhood. The difference is that sexual orientation and identity 
um, there's kind of a mix of people who will say, I've always known that I was different Mm -hmm. with respect to my desires, attraction, the people that I want to be emotionally, romantically, and, you know, ultimately sexually involved with. Uh, I've always known that was different. Um, And then there are folks for whom that emerges around the time of the changes that we think of as puberty. So Mm -hmm. around the sort of second decade when our bodies and minds begin to really change, that brings up for people an understanding of their gender, their sexuality. The thing that's, you know, important about the adolescence period, it's so embedded in our family relationships, our relationships with our peers, and the larger world and what's happening in the larger society that, um, you know, the adventure for the social and developmental scientist is, is disentangling all that and trying to understand what's going on for kids. But it's clear that an understanding of sexual identity has to be understood in adolescence as a product of relationships kids have, the schools they're in, but also the social and historical moment they're in. I would imagine that um, there's a lot of pushback with people that aren't as sort of self-actualized about this world that they say, well, they're too young. It's a phase. Uh, they're too young to know what they want. Um, you know, these are all things you hear out in our culture, um, yes. as well as particularly kids that want to transition. What do you think yeah. about that? Yeah, this is when I think the thoughtful and caring uh, medical, psychological professionals and and families need to really think with the child about what's best for them. Because I don't think that there is a single answer. What I do think we know now, there are, um, you know, there have been gender clinics in the Netherlands for much longer than in the United States. And, you know, starting about five years ago, we had the first studies that tracked people long enough. uh, And the very first pubertal interventions um, are pretty clearly showing in adulthood, meaning following people for, you know, a decade or more, uh, people who transition, who are are able to transition and allowed to transition early in life, have adult body satisfaction, emotional health, physical health, that is equivalent to everybody else in the general population. That to me is the most important kind of information that we need, Mm -hmm. um, because we're still a decade away from really having that that level of knowledge for, you know, robust, diverse populations around the globe, and especially here at home in the United States. And it's complicated, especially for families, I think, balancing. Some kids really have significant emotional need to uh, express themselves in a differently gendered way. For those kids, I think the compelling emotional need may outweigh concerns that we have that are real, because we we don't have aging people who had hormone replacement therapy. That's not a thing we've had. So we really don't know what the physiological long-term influences might be overall, right? Balancing all those things, I think, is something that families need to think through carefully. And, And increasingly, there's a conversation about like how much self-determination, you know, can children have? And we know pretty well, every kid is different, Mm -hmm. but you know, age 13, 14 is when we're pretty clear that uh, the reasoning function of the cognitive capacity of the brain has the same reasoning capacity as an adult brain. And we can understand what it means to have a future orientation. I mean, I would think it's it's a lot for a 13-year-old that knows they want to transition and to have to wait, you know, till quote unquote adulthood is is many years of pain. Right. And um, 
And if we're talking about pharmacological intervention, um, postponing that could really make a difference for the rest of their life in terms of their physical expression and movement in the world. And that is significant. You know, the question of breast development or facial hair development really makes a difference for how you live in the world. Imagining at 13 what it's going to be like at 16 is a really big deal. And so those are valid concerns for us to help our kids think through and for parents to try to anticipate. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret. Pack your bags with just-arrived swim, cover-ups, corset tops, and other sexy silhouettes. When the sun goes down, opt for bold and blingy styles, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy Push-Up Bra from the Very Sexy Collection, in on-trend hues like Black Shine, Green, and Citron. For a glam statement, pair them with your favorite jeans and bring the heat. Because life is better in a bikini. Rewind to the future with the VS Archive Swim Collection, inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. For endless out-of-office options, mix and match with Victoria's Secret's wide range of bikini tops and bottoms that offer you every type of coverage, from full to cheeky to minimal. And now, in this season's must-have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with the limited-edition Bombshell Escape fragrance, a free-spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad, is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor, and meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Welcome back with more Go Ask Alley. Discuss with me, because I know you've spoken about the school-to-prison pipeline. What do you mm-hmm. mean by that? School-to-prison pipeline is the, the ways that we systematically exclude some kids from education that makes them vulnerable to and is literally a pipeline into the juvenile justice system. Mm-hmm. And starting about five years ago, scholars started to be concerned about the ways that we saw other forms of not fitting in with what it means to be a, quote, good student uh, in the context of, you know, 30 kids in a classroom, American junior high and high schools. We've known this actually for a while about kids with learning challenges, that they're more likely to experience exclusionary discipline and to be in the justice system. Uh, It turns out we see the same kinds of patterns for LGBTQ kids, and our studies have shown that that For girls, it's often because they're perceived as aggressive. For boys, it's because they're uh, putting on having makeup. Being gender different and being told you can't wear nail polish. If girls can wear nail polish, why can't boys wear nail polish? But, you know, a boy getting suspended and then being on the street and getting picked up for being truant and then in a juvenile 
setting, they're more likely to be teased, you know, or worse. And so kids, uh, LGBTQ kids are more likely to be the target of victimization. Being in a fight, you may not want to tell the principal they were calling me a fag. Or the community, right. Yeah, right, you know, they right, were, right. were calling me a fag when they were hitting me. Right. Um, because maybe you're not ready to... Sh- Confront come that out. about yourself. Uh, yeah, of course. And you're certainly not going to come out to your principal first. Right. But um, and also, gay students, if they express um, their sexuality by holding hands or kissing, they're more likely to be suspended than right. kind of your heterosexual holding hands or making out. Right. So, do you feel like the LGBTQ students are set up to fail right now in our country? I was going to say, I think it depends on where they live and what kind of you know what we know makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. The, the thing that's encouraging is that we have so much new research in the last decade to really document, for example, with respect to schools, we know that inclusive and non-discrimination policies make such a huge difference for just the setting of schools, training teachers. Here's the thing. Most teachers really do want to do what's right for children. They're there because they care and they want kids to thrive. And a lot of teachers and parents too don't get it. Gender regulation is actually undermining kids, not helping them to fit in and be safe. I was going to ask you, Obama had directives for schools to protect transgender students. Are they still in place or have they that, under this administration? That was rescinded. That was, yeah, that was an early thing that mm-hmm. was rescinded from the uh, U.S. Department of Education. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the other thing I've read, th- that smaller schools have a tendency to be more compassionate, that uh, a, the smaller the community um have you found have, has a tendency to be more empathetic and more inclusive? Um, have you found that in your studies to be true? I think it's contingent on leadership and on the things like policies and strategies in schools. I think in principle, that's true, that in smaller communities, people are more likely to know one another and understand one another. And, and there is some degree of kind of exceptionalism, like, oh, well, I might not like the gays, but, you know, Susana is not like that. She's yes. the person that we've grown up with. And so... Um, there's some degree of exceptionalism, but the culture and the context of classrooms and schools is really kind of the main thing that is going to drive how kids do. And Mm -hmm. do we have a school setting where the culture is that everyone is treated with respect and fairness? You know, do we have leaders among students that assert that, you know, everybody has a right to an opinion, everybody has a right to space, that we don't act that way in our school, that we all get along here? What do you what do you think about like celebrities, YouTubers, Instagram personalities? Have have they been helpful? Because I know certainly with my own kids, they see movies where, you know, the best friend is trans or gay or and the more it gets into the mainstream of what teenagers watch, it seems to be uh, kind of breaking a lot of stereotypes. Have you found that? Yeah. You know, there's the good and the bad of, of all of the dimensions of that. Those of us who are old enough to remember when Ellen came out, you know, on television, there was literally nothing. I mean, it was yeah. absolute deafening silence in media. And that literally within two years, there wasn't such thing as a show that didn't have a gay character. What followed from that was sort of the stereotypes. And I think what LGBTQ kids continually struggle with is like, uh, who am I and what am I going to become? And if you are sort of only seeing a certain kind of version of that gay meant rich white guy i think that's where we have challenges i think sometimes also those messages are simplistic you know like the it gets better that was so compelling for so many 
people like us who were middle-aged, well, I'll speak for myself. Who yeah. were men- I, could be, <laughs> I could be your mother. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, I don't think so. But anyway, uh, so for people who were looking back and thinking mm-hmm. of the middle school as hell for, and that's true. Yes. And that the way that was so undermining for so many kids who felt like, I don't want to wait. I'm getting harassed every single day when I go to school. And mm-hmm. I frankly prefer not to wait until mm-hmm. things are someday somehow somewhat better. There has been sort of among advocates, among youth, a pushback on that message that like, we shouldn't use that as an excuse to settle for yeah. good enough schools for our kids mm-hmm. or good enough faith communities for our kids, we should say like, no, we should really, you know, make sure that things are better now. And we're, we are learning a lot about what can make that happen. So much of my focus has been on schooling because that is yeah. the place where the rubber often meets the road with the peer community before it comes home. Right. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. it's an institution that where the public has a stake and we can make policy changes um, in ways that we can't really with families. We can't make families change their minds about things, right? But we can say to schools, you might not change your mind, but you should at least stop discriminating mm-hmm. or you should at least create systems so that kids don't get, you know, bullied or harassed at school. Um, so at least at school, like you said, they can, you know, implement a safer environment. And I do want to talk to you about how we can push LGBT studies into the school curriculum. But mm-hmm. Uh, the home life you can't change. Now they're they're at home in most parts of this country, twenty four seven with a family that you know in terms of data and and percentages are not supporting them. Um, how do we help these students that are in quarantine right now? Yeah, it's really hard. There are many LGBTQ kids whose experiences now that they are recloseting in a way. I mean, that in fact, maybe their only place to have that expression was at school because they were not out at home. Right, right. You had sort of navigated with your family that you were out, but your real place to be out was at school. And so now you're home and you're the recloseting idea point about like not bringing it up, not having it be the focus of attention. That conversation that we've all been avoiding in the, uh, even though we've had it, we're avoiding it. One of the classic indication of family rejection for LGBTQ kids is parent regulating their peer networks, saying you can't hang out with those kids or you can't go to that group or you can't, you know, or monitoring their media, their social or digital media use. Can I go to that site or can I you know, text or email the friends. And so parents do that because it's the right thing to do in general for kids, right? <laughs> Knowing who, who we are, who we're with and where we are. Yeah. I mean, I, I struggle with it too, but I will say that during this pandemic, I have been a lot more lenient about screen time because it is their only way to socialize. Thinking about LGBTQ teens, I think, and I hope that at least when they're in their rooms and they're struggling with whatever they're struggling with, especially with a family that maybe doesn't support them, that there are support groups, there are places that they can go during this period, even if they yes. have to kind of put this, as you said, conversation on hold. There, the, yeah, Centerlink is yes. a great na- national resource and they have online chats now. They've had this for for a while now, but I think those are really taking off as a place where adult facilitated for the kid that doesn't have their own room for the kid that doesn't have their own computer or their own i you know i tool or phone or whatever you know whatever it is that they need mm-hmm. for their schooling um what if the only space you have is with a sibling what if the only space you have is in the living room um of a of a family space so i think we're seeing the you know cultural diversity social class diversity plant impacting 
not only just schooling, but then compounded with the social, emotional development uh, and sustaining the lives of LGBTQ kids and, and kids at the intersection of other sort of disadvantaged and marginal, marginalized groups, we really have to be concerned about. And the relentless optimist is that we are learning dramatically new things that are going to change the way we will be from now on. This is a cohort defining, a generation defining moment. There will be a couple of years of kids that will say, my high school years were those COVID years. And I will always have hand sanitizer in my, you know, back pocket for the rest of my yeah. life. Um, it's, no, I, th- I think masks are to be like condoms. Like yeah. you need both. You got to have them. And yeah. um, so I think adapting to digital communication is what young people have always done. All cultures, young people are the innovators. I mean, not mm-hmm. exclusively, but look at all of the people that we think of as billionaires and, you know, trace back where their innovation came from is when they were, you know, exactly. teenagers tinkering around in a exactly. garage or an attic or a backyard or a, somewhere. These sort of dilemmas are going to help kids be resilient. Uh, but I am nervous about the ways that it's undermining kids in the moment. I think that's the thing that we as parents need to be concerned about. Now a quick word from our sponsors. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret. Pack your bags with just-arrived swim, cover-ups, corset tops, and other sexy silhouettes. When the sun goes down, opt for bold and blingy styles, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy Push-Up Bra from the Very Sexy Collection, in on-trend hues like Black Shine, Green, and Citron. For a glam statement, pair them with your favorite jeans and bring the heat. Because life is better in a bikini. Rewind to the future with the VS Archive Swim Collection inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. For endless out-of-office options, mix and match with Victoria's Secret's wide range of bikini tops and bottoms that offer you every type of coverage, from full to cheeky to minimal. And now in this season's must-have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with the limited edition Bombshell Escape fragrance, a free-spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? And meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Welcome back to Go Ask Alley. Let's get back to the discussion. Let's assume that there are some parents listening to this podcast who have a, a child who is a LGBTQ youth, teenager, and they are struggling with acceptance or they're struggling with uh, how to support their teenager. 
Um, what kind of words of wisdom can you give these parents as well? What I've learned from parents, and especially from studying parent rejection yes. with kids, is that nobody really wants to reject their children. I think it's so core to our understanding and vision and imagination for our kids, like what we mm-hmm. think they're going to be someday. It's so if it's rooted in faith, it's so core to who to our fundamental beliefs about ourselves in the world. You can maintain your faith belief and support the thriving of your kid at the same time, that those don't have to be in conflict. The minority of people, I think, that really sort of fundamentally believe that two two men or two women should not be married. Um, You know, if you can put that on pause for now, when your kid is not asking you if they can get married, (laughs) they're asking you like, can I, you know, watch this show or can I wear this outfit or can I cut my hair in a certain way when when we regulate them and when we tell them that it's not okay. If we can just back off from those messages, they will thrive. They will be okay. Um, kids don't need their parents 100% acceptance because then they have nothing to complain about. I mean, this is part of what right. it means to be a teenager. And when you show the statistics about depression, mm-hmm. suicide, substance mm-hmm. use, and you say, we know that if you can back off from these things, mm-hmm. if, you can, if you can quit um, telling them that who they are is not okay, your kid will do better. And most, most parents are willing to do that. And then, you know, they realize this is not the end of the world. My kid is actually the person that I love and they're becoming who they're supposed to be in the world. Like I can say to teachers, I'm not trying to change your values. You don't have to like suddenly be in favor of, I'm just going to use gay marriage because that was the thing we talked about for a while. You don't have to be in favor of that to make sure that that kid is okay in the classroom this week. How can all kids have an equal chance at education? I completely agree with you. And I think it's so important because I think what happens is um, particularly with parents, is they they make a huge leap from, oh, I just saw, you know, Franny kissing Jane. Oh my God, I'm not going to have grandchildren. Oh my God, this is so anti, you know, whatever they wherever yes. they go to, that to just like you said, put it on hold would be so helpful for their psychological growth. Yeah, I imagine and I feel and I try to support the LGBTQ community because. I could really weep for the students who have that at home, that anger and an unaccepting household, and then go to school and are bullied. Um, and so if we can just give a little bit of guidance to parents, and you are definitely doing it with schools, a little bit of of hope for them, then you know, get these kids through their teenage years, like you said. Yeah. Consequently, they will be I think the parents, if they are more accepting, will still maintain that connection with them when they get older and make whatever decisions they make in the world. And it's complicated by the fact of adolescence. I mean, the the reality is people used to come out when they were in their 20s and 30s and 40s, and now they're coming out when they're 16, 15, 14, 13, or six, seven, you know, with respect Mm -hmm. to gender identity expression. And I think that the dilemma right now that we're in is that there have not been models for being a supportive parent of a queer kid. We haven't really had that. I mean, the next generation will have that, but right now we're making it up. Having a trans child, um, the deep, profound, incredible confrontation to their imagination for who that child is going to be in the world. Yep. And how, like, what was so concerning to me about the idea that my child that was born as Robert is going to be my beautiful daughter. Like 
the whole point of the human species is that we're resilient. I mean, that's why we exist as we do. Um, and so I think families are fundamentally resilient and almost all parents want to do right by their kids. So I think it's really helping families understand that it is those, it's the things that we're doing, the everyday small things that actually get under the skin and erode our kids' well-being. You know, I came out when I was 26. I lived independently, was financially mostly independent, and didn't rely emotionally, economically, financially on my parents. And I wasn't as mouthy. And, you know, there was no out gay people at the university where I went. At, in the, it was in the, in the South and yeah. um, in the 80s. That just, yeah. it, that much has changed. And so my ability to emotionally regulate myself when I was coming out to my parents mm-hmm. and my parents saying, you know, my mom saying, you don't expect me to tell anybody, do you? And it's like, mom, I don't expect to tell anybody. Well, right. of course, the first thing she did was call and tell people. Um, right, but, right. you know. Yeah. I mean, I have to say that sometimes coming out stories are so helpful to younger people. I mean, I have many friends that have, you know, told my kids their coming out story because when they tell the story and the parents empower them, everybody's like, oh my God, your parents are so great. Um, Will you tell me a little bit about you as a parent before, before we sign off? Just tell me about your kids and sort of how you parent them. Sure. It's a wild, long story, so I don't know how much time you have, but my son is 25 and he was an undocumented immigrant when he was 13. Uh-huh. We were not looking to be parents. We had an immigration attorney friend who called and said, like, there's a gay kid who's undocumented who needs a home right now. Can you do it? And we looked at each other and said, uh, I guess so. We should probably do that. <laughs> and um, he's amazing. And um, it was an adventure because we were like, it was pretty, the funny part, of course, was that we were like, oh my God, what do we do? And people kept saying to me, aren't you an expert on this? Like, aren't you supposed to know something? And I was like, oh my God, I never thought of that. I'm not an, I don't know anything about raising a kid. (laughs) They're like, wait, you're the expert. I'm just curious. It's just one kid or two? Just one. Just Just one. Yeah. And and did you have to learn Spanish? It's super interesting, like a very sort of classic immigrant story. He was not, he did not want to speak Spanish. I think he had a lot of trauma. He, and he also was invested in rejecting uh, the Mexican part of who he was. He understood mm-hmm. it as poor and homophobic and, mm-hmm. you know, negative. And that was, that was a hard thing for us for a long time was helping him understand. Actually, homophobia is not owned by certain groups. <laughs> like there are plenty of white people that are homophobic right. too. Right. Um, but, so he, um, got, he got to grow up in this, this incredibly nurturing environment. Yes, he, the super interesting thing for him was like the 360 twice from, from a really, from one kind of life to a, to another one, to a middle class, where the last thing he needed to worry about was being gay. Um, we had so many interesting wild stories about, you know, raising a gay teenager these days, and especially him. But, you know, for example, I do all this research on high school gender sexuality alliance clubs, gay straight alliance clubs, GSAs. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a GSA at his school, and I was friends with the, uh, the faculty sponsor of the GSA. And I kept saying to him, why don't you go to the GSA? Have you thought about the GSA? And it find, he, didn't, he was not interested. And I finally said, what's the deal with the GSA? He said, look, all the kids at the GSA complain about their parents and not being able to be out at home. And I just, like, I just don't want to hang out with them. And I thought, how interesting <laughs> that my, my kid, like, does it connect with the 
gay kids because they're struggling with coming out. And he's like, been there, done that. And actually one of his big problems as a teenager dating was that all the little boys he wanted to date, wanted to date him, but didn't want anyone to know. Yeah. And he thought like, he was, he was ahead of his time in that way. Cause he was like, Mm -hmm. you know, it was all out there for him because his, his life circumstance. And he was the gay kid with the gay dads. And so he was like, I can't believe these stupid boys are too ashamed of being gay. And I'm like, well, honey, yeah, they had a really, they have a really different experience than you have. You have to be exactly. open to that. Um, exactly. Very proud of him. Yeah. He's I a, call that a success story. He's, he's just, he's a really sweet guy, um, which is nice. How would you direct anybody that wanted to in, get involved in an activist kind of way politically about helping schools be more inclusive with the LGBTQ community? Is there, is there any place you would direct people? Glisten is the is amazing national organization for LGBTQ issues in education, and so and there are chapters all around the country. So Glisten is like the a go to, and then uh, you know, reach out. I mean, the, one of the things I say when I do workshops or I visit teachers or I say, you know, does your school have an inclusive non discrimination policy? Mm-hmm. And there are many many blank faces in the room, even of people that are well meaning, even of people that are advocates for their kids, and I think that kind of really concrete call your superintendent, call your school board members and say, why don't we include sexual orientation and gender identity and expression in our non-discrimination policy? Have our teachers been trained on understanding and supporting LGBTQ young people? And when you know of families that are experiencing dilemmas for their kids that are LGBTQ, become involved. So like think of, uh, any LGBTQ kid as our kids. And so I really think that parents make a huge difference in moving the dial in schools. And I think when, um, what happens, I think for many parents of LGBTQ kids is their kid may be the only kid. The parent may feel isolated. The parent may feel like they don't know where to go. PFLAG, Parents and Friends of Lesbian and Gays is an important also national organization for parents. Um, But uh, what I would say to the parents of the cis straight kids is like, listen to your kids, find out what's happening and be an ally to the parents mm-hmm. of kids who are, you know, going to the school board or the principal. That was my, Absolutely. You know. Absolutely. Well, Stephen, so. this has been great. I cannot wait to shoot the movie based on the book, based on your life. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> I love that. Part of, a chapter of the book will be about being a cheer mom. I was a cheer mom for my son. My son integrated the Tucson High Cheer Squad. And the stories that I had, I would go to these meetings and I was one of the only dads. I would torment my kid and say like, do you want me to get my nails done with the badger on them? Because all the moms have their nails done with badgers for the football game. He was like, yeah. Oh, that's great. Anyway. I mean, but by the way, teenagers are embarrassed of your parents no matter what you do anyway. Totally. So that's all I do is embarrass my daughters. Stephen Russell, thank you so much for being on Go Ask Alley. This has been really great. It's been so nice to talk to you about sort of what you're doing and your thoughts. And I think, you know, for me, this is a particularly uh, important issue for parents. And thank you. Thank you so much. It was really fun. Thank you for tuning in to Go Ask Alley. Feel free to write a review, subscribe, 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 or follow me on social media on Instagram, The Real Alley Wentworth, and Twitter, Alley E. Wentworth. Go Ask Alley is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, 
visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.